Hi, I'm Philippe. I'm Justine. And this is the Boards Network Podcast. This show is an open-ended exploration of the people and practices behind the most effective boards of directors. Private companies rule a big part of the world around us, and boards dictate their strategy and decisions. We believe that by changing boards, we can change the world. Today, the show brings you to Austin, Texas, to have a chat with Brett Hurt. Brett is the CEO and co-founder of Data.World, which is building the most meaningful, collaborative, and abundant data resource in the world as a certified B corporation. We'll come back to that later in the interview. He's also a seed stage investor at Hurt Family Investments in partnership with his wife, Deborah. Hurt Family Investments are involved in 72 startups and 21 VC funds. Prior to that, Brett founded Bazaar Voice and served as CEO and president for seven and a half years, leading the company from bootstrapped concept to almost 2,000 clients worldwide and through its successful IPO. Prior to Bazaar Voice, Brett founded Core Metrics and helped grow the company into a global leading marketing analytics solution for the e-commerce industry before its acquisition by IBM. He serves on the nonprofit boards of Data Coalition and Data Foundation, both of which are dedicated to advancing the open data movement in government. Brett has been working on a book called The Entrepreneur's Essentials that we highly recommend you read. Just like the conversation we had with him for the show, it's full of insights and advice that are directly actionable. Brett, thank you very much for taking some of your time to be on our show today. We're really looking forward to learn about board and governance from you. Well, thanks a lot for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with a fellow warden alums. So yeah, thank you. I'd like to start with something a little bit intriguing for me. At Data World, you chose to be a B corporation. Conceptually, could you tell us what a B corporation is and why you chose to adopt the, the practices necessary to become a certified B Corp? Yeah, sure. So this is my sixth business as an entrepreneur. I actually started my first business when I was 24 years old and I'm 47 now. And I was exposed to the B corporation um, structure through several um, different interactions. So one is I became a Henry Crown Fellow out of the Aspen Institute, and I got to know one of my fellows really well, Neil Grimmer, who founded Plum Organics, which is a baby food company that Campbell's acquired, and he had turned that into a B corporation. So I asked him a lot about that, and and then some other Henry Crown Fellows were Jay Cohen Gilbert as well as Bart and Andrew, his co-founders of B-Lab, which created the B Corporation movement. And as I studied it, I realized that it was a more evolved form of capitalism. It still had all of the benefits of a C Corporation, and that actually is the basis for it, but with different um, you know, additional benefits on top of it. And I had served on the board of Conscious Capitalism for several years, and I thought, you know, if I'm going to go back into the arena, I'm going to make sure that our mission statement is so embodied in the company that it's a part of our corporate governance. And the B Corporation structure, which specifically we're a public benefit corporation, means that we have the legal structure in the state of Delaware where our mission statement is actually codified on our corporate charter. It's a really amazing structure for several reasons. You're still a for-profit corporation. It's not an excuse not to have best-in-class financial margins, but it is this way to say, look, we're here for the long term. We really care about what we're doing. We really want all of our employees, all of our stakeholders to understand that this is our mission statement, and it's so important to us that we actually put it in our, our corporate governance. And it, it was actually the very first board meeting with uh, our first investor that led our $14 million Series A back in 2016 um, to decide to um, adopt that structure. We were a C corporation at the time. And uh, we converted into a B corporation and a public benefit corporation um, on July 11th, 2016. And we got 100% of our shareholders to sign off on us doing that and publicly basically support that move. And for some of our investors, like John Mackey, who's the founder of Whole Foods and the CEO of Whole Foods, he, it was the first time he had ever invested in a B corporation. 
And he was initially skeptical about the structure. He would tell you that if he was on this podcast, even though Whole Foods has such an amazing culture, um, I think his initial skepticism, like, why do you have to do that? You can always have a great company culture um, without putting that in your corporate charter. But he flipped to a point where he now is on stage at South by Southwest with me a year ago and publicly stated that if he founded a company today, it would be a B corporation, which I think is so cool, (laughs) which, um, so, you know, it's, it's led to a lot of great things. It actually also led to us testifying in Texas on behalf of representative Gina Hinojosa, who was a freshman, uh, representative in in, in the Texas Congress to um, have us testify because she was trying to get public benefit corporation legislation passed. And it did pass in the state of Texas. I think there's, you know, over 35 states in the U.S. now where you can incorporate as a public benefit corporation. And then the certification is an additional layer of scrutiny on top of that. You're actually certified by B-Lab. It's something you have to obviously choose to do. And then you get a public score, which shows how you compare to other B corporations. And I'm proud to say we've been in the top 10% of B corporations for uh, the past three years. Um, Every year we've gotten a top 10 award, which is great. First of all, what you write in your corporate charter to really define your mission and vision about the way you want to do business, what does that entail specifically? Does that include terms about level inequality within and outside the company, things about sustainable sourcing of suppliers to make sure that they also respect the environment and people, things like that. How does that translate into legal terms in your charter? So you are measured as a certified B corporation on how diverse you are um, from employee base, how 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 much you impact the environment. I mean, all of those things are measurements and you can read about um, B corporations and what the different measures are on the B Lab website. Just look at look up the profile for Data.World and you can read how we score in those different areas. One thing that you do as a B corporation is every two years you're required to um, give your shareholders a report on how you're living up to your public benefit corporation statement. And we decided from the beginning of our company, well, from the beginning of making that decision, which was a few months into our company, we decided to publicly report on that instead of just our shareholders. So um, I've reported on that every year. And the most recent blog post, which you can get on um, data.world slash blog, is um, three years in pursuit of a mission that really matters. So it's, uh, it's our third anniversary um, since our launch on July 11th, 2019. And, um, and I basically re- restate what is our public mission. So I'll just read it to you. A, to strive to build the most meaningful, collaborative, and abundant data resource in the world in order to maximize data's societal problem-solving utility. B, advocate publicly for improving the adoption, usability, and proliferation of open data and linked data. And C, serve as an accessible historical repository of the world's data. And then what I do every year is I then talk about how we're actually fulfilling that, um, you know, mission, you know, by dissecting each part of that mission statement. And um, I would encourage people to read this blog post. Maybe we can link to it. Yeah, of course. I'll put the link in the description of the episode. Because I really described that in detail, but I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of our entire company um, for really living up to that statement year after year. And it creates an extremely strong culture. We just won our fourth annual Best Place to Work Award as a company. And um, the soul is very strong. And it's very attractive to people that are joining us. I mean, a lot of times people are joining us because we're different. You know, one, one downside of a B corporation, as a lot of people ask me what the downsides are, is that you are different. And 
you know, we in society tend to always follow the herd and that's the rare, you know, company that comes along that really changes the way you think. And um, in this case, I think that difference is something that you can very passionately answer <laughs> and say, well, yeah, we are different. We're different because we really care about what we're doing. We think that what we're doing is really important for the world. And you can go into this you know, pretty long explanation, which, uh, which only leads you to a great place. And you know, B corporations are backed by all types of VCs. B corporations go public. Um, there's no real financial downside of a B corporation. It's all upside. And one thing I learned at Warden from Professor Stu, Stu Friedman, who's one of my best friends these days, he wrote the book Total Leadership. He talks about in Total Leadership that leaders can design their life and work to create what he calls four-way wins. So what's a four-way win? And then I'll relate this to a B corporation. A four-way win is if you analyze your life by four dimensions, career, personal, family, and then spiritual or community, and you state how you're living, how you're allocating time among those four, if you really just look at your calendar and think about how you're allocating time, and then you say, how would you actually like to allocate time? What is, what is a perfect life in your mind in terms of how to allocate time between those four things? And then you try to design your life in a way where you fit, um, you, you create four-way wins, where you, you change something that literally increases your scores in all four areas. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and, you know, I, it's something that it had a profound effect on me, that book. And I put all of Bizarre Voice through that book after I read it. And it literally led to a life change for me where you can have it all. You can actually, if you think about constraints like that, you can create four-way wins. You just have to think differently. Like one of the things I do here at Data.World, I probably work over 70 hours a week. I love what I do. I don't actually count the hours. I think if you count the hours, then you're not in the right career, mm -hmm. right? But I, I, I truly love what I do. But one of the things I do six days a week is I work out for 45 minutes, but I do it here at the office. So it's a consistent, you know, six day a week workout. And it keeps me in, in great shape. I'm, I'm in the best shape I've been in since I was in college right now. And, uh, and it doesn't, it, you know, it makes me much, much more happy personally, makes me much more mentally balanced. It creates a much higher level of performance in the office. It creates a much higher level of um, performance with my family because I am much happier. You know, I know that I've got it in. It creates an enormous amount of time to spend with my family because I don't waste my time driving to a gym and driving back, which takes about two, two and a half hours all, all in. Mm -hmm. um, I get to constantly, uh, you know, hit my major muscle groups as opposed to the infrequency of going to a gym, um, you know, which has that big time tax on it. Um, so it's a four-way win. You know, it, 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 it's, a, it's, it's something that gives me more time to practice my faith, which is Judaism, more time to spend on community. Um, so it's really, it's really been a big benefit for me. It's just an example of one. Well, now let's relate that to B corporations. You can actually be a top performing corporation of all types and also be a B corporation. A B corporation is not an excuse not to have top tier financial performance. It is just a way of being as a company. And it's possible to have it all. It's possible to do it all. And that is what we need to think about when we think about designing companies and designing our own lives is think in terms of abundance and not think in terms so much of massive trade-offs and, and uh, you know, guilt that comes with that massive trade-off. Like I feel like I'm a very engaged father, a very engaged husband, very engaged business leader, very engaged board member doesn't mean I, I, I feel like I'm getting it right every week. I'm, I don't 
feel like I'm perfect or anything like that. But um, I'm always striving to create that four-way win and, and it can happen with company design too. And I think the B Corporation model is literally just a more evolved way of being as a capitalist. It's a more conscious way of being as a capitalist. It's a it's still very much a capitalist, though. If I could summarize the main difference between a B Corp and a C Corp and tell me if I'm wrong, it's a bit like Charlie Munger says, tell me about the incentives and I'll tell you about the outcomes. And since you're literally changing the fiduciary duty of all the stakeholders involved, because now they have a fiduciary duty out towards society as a whole, then because you're changing the incentives, the outcome will improve along the lines that you just described. Yes, I, I, I absolutely believe that. And, you know, the business roundtable last month came out with a statement that they should focus on all stakeholders, not just shareholders. And we were one of the companies that placed that ad in the New York Times a week later that was on page A11, a um, alongside Patagonia and Ben and & Jerry's, two other prominent B Corps, where we said, well, here's actually a way of being that allows you to do that from a governance standpoint. And um, we were very proud to be in that ad. I've had conversations with, with some CEOs about that. And, you know, we have a duty to, to lead. You know, we're trying to create a movement. Um, and we're in a very interesting political time where more and more people are talking about climate change and talking about big problems that the world has. And uh, you can actually lead as a capitalist in a very conscious way. And it doesn't mean that you won't have top tier financial performance or any of the rest, or you won't give your investors a great return. That's just all a fallacy. Like that's a herd mentality when you think, well, we must be a C corporation. We all must establish in Delaware. And that's the only way because that's the way that everybody did in the past. Well, if we all thought that way about everything, nothing would change. I mean, there was a time in this country where slavery was the capitalist model. Thank God we don't think that way anymore. <laughs> I'm curious, you know, this is, we're in 2019, almost 2020 now. And as you said, today, there's a lot of noise in the press and, you know, everybody's very concerned about climate change and it's taking a lot of airtime. But 2016 was different. It was not, you know, that much noise around those topics. I'm curious, was it hard to convince investors and business partners? I mean, you also have, you know, executives working for you, employees. How was the conversation like at the time? Yeah, so I thought it may be hard to convince investors because Shasta Ventures led our Series A. And they're a very soulful, entrepreneur-forward and friendly VC firm. But Jason Pressman had never backed a B Corporation and he backed us as a C corporation. And our first line of business as a board was to decide on whether or not to convert to a B corporation. So I, I had the general counsel of B Lab, who at the time was Rick Alexander, he used to work in the state of Delaware. And um, Rick joined our board call, and I'd sent materials in advance to Jason. And we had an hour reserve for the discussion. And about 30 minutes into it, Jason said, hey, I want you to know, I read all the materials in advance. This really makes sense. Let's do it. And we then made the decision half the time that I allocated and we went forward. You know, it takes some pioneers for VCs to have their first B Corporation. There's, there's some that are in kind of the unicorn club like Lemonade the insurance company is a B corporation. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, getting easier and easier to be a part of that new way of being that new club, if you will, as far as my co-founders, that conversation took about five minutes because, you know, I've, I've been in business for a long time as an entrepreneur and this is my sixth business, as I mentioned. And I partnered with people that I had worked with, in prior companies. Um, and I knew for a fact they were very soulful people and they were absolutely on board and just thought it was awesome for us to do. And that, that conversation literally took five minutes at an executive team meeting. They were, they, were, they were really enthusiastic about it. 
one last question about that topic and then we, we can move on and discuss about your book. How does that impact the way the board behaves during meetings? Is it just a change of KPIs or is there something deeper happening? You know, we, we report pretty regularly on how we're fulfilling our mission. Um, we reference when we um, receive an award, like being named in the top 10% of all B corporations. Uh, we talk about the importance of increasing diversity and why that's important. So it actually does put this stronger sense of soul in our board meetings. But I don't want to overplay it. It, it doesn't make them super different from Bizarre Voice. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's something that um, maybe makes it 5 or 10% different in a, in a board meeting. I think the much bigger benefit is how it allows you to relate with the outside world and with all of your employees um, and the outside world being all of your partners, all your customers. It's major difference there. I mean, I remember when Megan Smith, who was the CTO of the US, uh, when I met her at South by Southwest years ago and I told her that we were public benefit corporation, she literally stopped in her track. She pointed at me and she said, I've been waiting for someone like you to come along. And, you know, all of data.gov is on data.world. U.S. Census is on data.world. We have so many different government partners. A lot of universities use data.world to teach their data science and data analytics classes. It's made a big impact in the world. Government of Mozambique just signed up, for example. We've become the world's largest collaborative data catalog and community. We've now applied the best of that to our enterprise solutions for large Fortune 500 companies to have a private enterprise data catalog amongst their employees with Google-like search capabilities and the rest. So it's made a big impact. Um, Externally, it's made a big impact. Internally, there's a very strong sense of soul at data.world. Um, it has made an impact at the board level, but you know, Jason Pressman is a soulful leader, and uh, he just kind of gets it. And we've got a very small board right now. It's just myself, my co-founder and CEO, Matt Lessig, and Jason Pressman from Shasta Ventures. We have an open slot for an independent director, which we're interviewing candidates for that right now. Um, but it's, it's, uh, I don't want to overplay that it like has this dominance over the board meeting. It really doesn't. Does that change your approach? Who do you want around the table? You mentioned you're looking for an independent board member right now. Does the fact that you're a B Corp has an impact on that? One of the women I'm talking to about that role, she's very attracted to the company because we're a B corporation. And she has personally never worked at B Corporation. So it's, it's interesting that she sees this as well as this more evolved way of being as a capitalist and finds it very attractive. So I do think it makes a difference when you're recruiting. It certainly helped us a tremendous amount in recruiting on the employee front. I mean, there have been people that have joined us in the face of competitive alternatives because we're, because we're B Corporation, because they know that we really care. You're a great example demonstrating that this model works. We hope that more people learn from what you've done and that the corporation movement spreads and more people adopt that. I'd love to switch gears a little bit and discuss about your ebook. And there are a few topics that were really interesting uh, in light of the, the topic of board of directors. One is communication. Communication with your board members is always tricky. It's, it's hard to find the balance in terms of frequency amount and sometimes you know the board complains they get too much information too little not in the right format it's also difficult to understand what level of detail they want and in your ebook you wrote a great chapter about the best way to communicate with investors advisors and board members so could you tell us a little bit more about your approach when you were an entrepreneur and how you now approach communication as an investor and board member in other companies yeah, I'm, try I'm trying to remember which chapter that is in the Entrepreneur's Essentials. I think it's chapter 12, maybe. But anyways, you can, you can find all that online. The book is, is a gift to entrepreneurs and is available for free on Medium. If you just follow me at Data Brett, you'll see it there. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I learned, and I really learned this at the beginning of Bizarre Voice, is that I put myself in the shoes of 
an investor, even though I wasn't yet an investor in startups at the time. I'm now an investor in 77 startups and 21 VC funds. But at the time, at the beginning of Bizarre Voice, I didn't have that financial wealth to do that. And I said, how would I want to be treated if I was them? I would want to be pretty up to date on what's happening in the company. I would want to know where I could help. I want to create a big tent, you know, where where if we're sitting around a campfire and we're about to go to battle and the campfire, the first circle is just the employees in the company and myself. And that second circle is all the advisors and investors invest in us. And if we can turn behind us and say, hey, you know, do you have a battle axe? <laughs> and they say, yes, you know, here's a battle axe. Um, sorry, I played a lot of D&D. <laughs> created a game based on D&D as well when I was 18 on the internet. And so, you know, if, 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 uh, if, 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 I, if I have these amazingly high-powered people surrounding me, why would I not want their help? And I found that the cadence to ask for their help was, the, was on a weekly basis. And it had to be pretty short form. So I send out, it's around a 1,500-word average update, which is about a seven-minute read every week since the beginning of data.world and since the beginning of Bizarre Voice. And I've got an amazing leverage from my investors as a result. They're able to tell their friends about the company. And a lot of times their friends are Fortune 500 executives that could be buyers of our solutions. They're you know, able to tell potential partners about us, you know, biz, you know, people that we should work on from a business development standpoint who won't be customers, but be go-to-market partners and the rest. They're able to tell potential employees about us, potential board members about us, because they're very informed. And also, all of our employees at Data.World receive that weekly report. And so they're extremely informed. And that doesn't mean we don't do a lot of in-person communication. As a matter of fact, after this podcast, um, I'm hosting our all-hands at 4 p.m. here on Friday, because we do that every week. And, um, and, you know, we highlight the major happenings of the week, the major accomplishments of the week. And we also, at the end, do the thank yous for the week. And it's really a beautiful moment where people just go around and you, you hear people saying thank you for all types of things that happened that week that, that uh, it's just beautiful. It's really a beautiful thing. Oh, have you started doing that from the start? And when we started doing that from the start, that was actually my co-founder, John Loyan's idea. Um, we did have a weekly all hands at uh, Bizarre Voice as well, but it wasn't structured in the same way. I, we didn't have thank yous at the end, for example. And it's a really beautiful addition. So, you know, all of our employees received the same communication as our investors and advisors, including I present every board deck to all of our employees after the board meeting and talk about what happened in the board meeting. Now, one thing I don't present, and I'm very transparent with our team members about this, is I don't show them stock option approvals. I don't show them salary increases. That's one thing which, you know, I, I found that that's not conducive to a productive culture. But we do, we do look at all types of things in the company on the salary side. You know, gender equality is a huge one for us. We were the first company in Austin to receive the same work, same pay certification. We look at, you know, whether or not people that are in the same job role are, are within the bands that we've set up and where they're at in the bands, why they're at those bands. So we debate all that stuff. And people know that we debate all that stuff, but I don't show that part of our board deck. But the amazing thing is that uh, all of our employees see everything the board sees outside of that, which is 95% of the material. They see 95% of the material. And they see every week the same email that I send to keep all of our investors and advisors informed. And I always receive multiple replies to that email with offers to help in all types of random areas. And it just creates a stronger external culture as well as a strong internal culture. And that really matters when you're, when you're trying to build a company. I mean, I don't know a successful entrepreneur who hasn't been helped by many, many people. 
and I want all the help I can get. Yes, this is my sixth business. Yes, I'm an experienced entrepreneur, but I need a lot of help and I need a lot of luck. <laughs> and any entrepreneur who doesn't believe that or has become successful in their past and thinks that it was all about them, they're just absolutely lying to themselves. And you know, there's a huge amount of luck and a huge amount of help from others that goes into this. And I, I stand on the shoulder shoulders of many giants that have helped me in my past and do my best to honor them all the time. The acknowledgement section of my book, by the way, is very long. That was a very hard thing to write because I'm like, I could just write this forever. Um, I mean, there's so many people that have helped me along the way. I won this award in Austin called the Best Legacy CEO Award. And I made my entire speech dedicated to just talking about all the people that had helped me along the way. And I was writing that, I was like, how on earth am I going to fit this into 15 minutes? It was so hard to do. And I, so I apologized on all the things I couldn't include. But um, if you really think about it deeply, you know, starting out with your parents um, and all the luck that you received along the way, you, you're honoring, you're doing your best to honor many, many people that have helped you. Um, so, you know, that, that weekly email is a very powerful thing for companies to do. Now, I invest in a lot of startups, as I mentioned, and I always send them that chapter which was a blog post prior to becoming a chapter in the book. You know, the book updated the post pretty significantly um, with all the modern information about how we're doing in data.world and a lot of reflection on that practice from the Bizarre Voice days. You know, very few startups actually follow that advice, believe it or not. The ones that do tend to be the highest performing companies in our portfolio. And I and I and I'm not dogmatic about it. I don't I, I don't send it to them and say, hey, you must do this or anything else. I don't control them and I'm not trying to control them. They're the CEO. I'm just trying to say this has worked for me. But very few actually follow that advice. And it's surprising because I think their employees would love to know too. It's not just for the investors and advisors, it's also for their team. And I think they'd build a much stronger company as a result. And it's a bit like exercise or flossing. You know, you have to do it every day. Um, and you can create a pattern where you can create a pattern for good habits where it just becomes a ritual and, you know, almost an afterthought. Um, and it's one of those patterns, I think, that's very good for startup hygiene. Do you work on that 1500 word essay every week alone or? No, I definitely don't work on it alone. I, I include the entire executive team in that exercise. And we collectively probably spend three, four hours on it, of which, you know, that's about 45 minutes of my time. Um, and, you know, they, they each individually spend 30 to 45 minutes on it. So it, it, it adds up to cumulative of, you know, three to four hours would be my my estimate. It's sometimes it's two to three. You mentioned that you know sharing that was really important for your culture. You also wrote in one of your book chapters that the CEO must be the chief culture officer and no one else can be. I'd like to contrast that a little bit with you know in some more mature companies there have been books written about that. The fact that the board should lead more in the boardroom and be a little bit more involved in, you know, shaping the mission, the vision, the culture. What's your view on the balance of the relationship between the CEO and the board when it comes to culture? Well, I definitely think that the board can reinforce great culture. I like to expose a lot of people at Data.World to Jason Pressman on our board mm -hmm. because I think Jason's brilliant. He's got a very good heart. He really helps our, our team. He does everything he can to help our team. So I want them to meet him. It just needs to be the right topic for the board meeting for them to present on, you know, because you only have so much time in those board meetings. Um, so I've had a lot of team members present in the board room to Jason. And undoubtedly, that has a cultural impact um, because they see what a good soul we're working with. Um, as our largest investor in the company, it just kind of reinforces like, hey, we're, we're really doing this right. We're building this for the long term. We're doing this with a lot of good intentionality. 
Um, but the reason I wrote that about the chief culture officer needs to needs to be the CEO is that you know the CEO is the only person in a company, and this is this is a difference from the board. It's the only person in the company that can literally see what's happening across all departments. You know, your charter is to know what's happening across all departments. Um, you obviously need to hire people that you can fully trust that. You know, you can fully delegate to, et cetera, but um, but you you have to know what's happening in your company. That's part of the job, and you also form things like all hands agendas and offsite agendas. And if you aren't informed on what's happening across the company, then it's very hard to form those agendas. Those agendas are often very collaborative exercises too. Um, so if you if you don't add culture to the agenda, then you're not going to shape it as much. And you know, there's only so much shaping you can do of culture from a tops-down perspective. A lot of culture is shaped from a grassroots perspective. A lot of the best things that come out of culture happen grassroots. For example, one of the individual contributors at Data.World just the, earlier this week came up with the idea for Altox. The data.world mascot is a is an owl. It's a you know, universal symbol of knowledge and wisdom. And there's a great shout out to the semantic web crowd on why we chose the an owl as our symbol. Um, it stands for web ontology language, which is the uh, the lingua franca, if you will, for the semantic web, um, which all of data.world is built on knowledge graph. So I'll stop there because that could get really geeky really fast. I'm passionate about it, but maybe your listeners won't be as much. But, uh, but you know, Caroline came up with this idea for owl talks, which are TED-like talks presented by all the amazing people we have in the company. And I just signed up to give an owl talk. We're going to have this on November 21st in the evening. Um, at her home, she she set it up this way for two and a half hours or fifteen minute talks each. And I just signed up to give a talk on Vedanta, which is an over five thousand year old Indian philosophy, which has helped me a lot with gaining control over my own mind. And it's um it's a very powerful practice. Um, it's not a religious practice. It's more about understanding that your mind is like a child, and sometimes constantly stays in a state of worry about the past or anxiety about the future and therefore completely misses the present which is if you don't focus on the present you can't have any action in life and some people spend five years of their life worried about the past and miss those five years unfortunately and so it's it's a it's very powerful practice i'm going to be given to talk about it but that happened completely organically nobody asked caroline to do that she just did it it's 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 really awesome that she did and and uh, it's been amazing to see how many people have already signed up to present. You know, she's going to have to cut cut the list down to even make it fit within the time. And there's all these obscure and funny and informative topics that people are signing up for. Um, so, you know, what is my role when it happens organically? My role when it happens organically is to show up, to be a part of it, to reinforce like, hey, that's awesome. Like, you know, to do my best to make it more meaningful and fun. And if it's tops down, my job is to make it, um, you know, impactful for the entire company and, and survey people on how it's working. So like a tops down approach of being a chief culture officer is do you have the right performance review process? We do our performance review process every six months at um at data.world so it's twice a year and there's a section which asks how the person's living the core values so that reinforces the values that we set out another example of tops down was i was responsible for what are our values and i turned that on its head and i made that very grassroots and i wrote a whole chapter in my book about that about the most beautiful and unusual way to form your company's values. Um, but I had to instigate that. You know, I don't think that would have happened um, without me instigating that uh, because that's kind of one of the CEO tasks. And so 
so it, there, there's this combination of tops down and, and, and bottoms up and, and beauty can happen from both sides of that, you know, but ultimately the culture is the operating system for the company and the board does have some level of oversight in the operating system. For example, when the operating system goes off the rails, like it did at Uber, you know, the board can get involved and can, you know, there were some real cultural problems at Uber that the board had to get involved um, to kind of help correct. And now Uber's on a much better path from a cultural standpoint and diversity standpoint and the rest. You know, there, 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 is, there is some operating system oversight that's required by a board for the culture. Do you assess your board based on these values as well every six months or every year? You know, Jason asked me every year how he's doing as a board member, and he asked all of us on the executive team. He does that proactively. So the answer is yes at data.world. I didn't do that at Bizarre Voice, and I regret not doing that at Bizarre Voice. But uh, I'm glad it's a part of our culture at data.world. One of the chapters I wrote is about how to check references. And it's one of the most important chapters because this crazy thing happens inside companies where if you have a junior engineer who you're assessing, you will check his or her references more than you would check the references of a board member with a lot of panache coming in. Like, how could they do any wrong? Look at all they've achieved. Oh my gosh, you know, this person's amazing. Like, I'm lucky to even work with them. Well, the reality is that those are all the headlines of the story. The devil's in the details. And you really should check their references even more because if you hire a bad board member or bad executive, it literally could ruin your company. It could lead to all types of cultural challenge. And if there's rot at the top, it it literally filters throughout the entire company. That's part of the reason why the CEO needs to be the chief culture officer. I mean, if the CEO doesn't give a damn about culture and believes in kind of the Leviathan, you know, Hobbesian approach, I'm referring to Thomas Hobbes who wrote Leviathan, and that all people must be controlled and, you know, are, you know, essentially beast to be ruled over, kind of like the North Korea view of humanity, I guess, then, you know, how, how is that company going to have a good culture? I mean, you could hire the best chief people officer in the world and they're going to wither completely in a culture like that if the CEO doesn't believe it because that CEO is going to berate that person all the time for being so soft and caring so much about these people and why they believe in the spirit of people. Um, so it's, uh, it's really important that the CEO embodies the values of the company And if they violate those values, then the values start to mean nothing. I'd like to dig a bit deeper in your process to hire and reference board members. How do you approach it? How much time do you spend doing that? When should you start hiring your first independent board member, first of all, when you're a startup? And then where do you find them? You know, in terms of where to find them, I mean, you have this large network of investors and advisors or You know, in your case, you know, being a Warden grad, you have the whole Warden network to leverage. Um, so there's always networks to be leveraged. So that's that's the finding them part. In turn, and there's there. By the way, there's there's more and more networks emerging um, for hiring female board members. For example, there's a nonprofit called the Board List, for example, that makes it easy to tap into uh, female power executives for your board. Um, which I think is a great thing. So that's, that's the kind of answer on where to find them. In terms of how much time, you should spend a lot of time on it. Um, it's a really important hire. And they can really mess things up if, if you don't hire the right person. And so for Jason Pressman, I'll give you an example. I've known Jason for 20 plus years now. This is the first company I've actually worked with him on as a board member, though. And I checked seven of his references, and I spent at least 45 minutes each with them. And I followed the approach that I learned from Scott Cook, the founder of Intuit, which I write about in my book, which I wish I had known that approach earlier. 
I didn't learn that until I think it was 2013. Um, so it's a, it's a really good approach that Scott has. And one of the approaches that he has is, you know, you do the normal reference checking and you wait until close to the end and you say, okay, well, you know, thank you so much for being so thorough. And you're asking probing questions like, you know, what is one thing that I really should know in terms of how to work with them better? Like nobody's perfect. You know, the, like you're really trying to push and push and push to get to, you know, any form of what their weaknesses are. Cause we all have them. We all know we have them. Um, but you wait until close to then and you say, okay, out of every board member you've ever worked with, how would you stack rank them on a scale of one to 10 with 10 being the highest? And if they say a seven, then you say, okay, well, what would have made them a 10 in your mind? And now you're getting comparative because that person's eyes, if you're able to look in their eyes when you're asking that question, their eyes are going to dart up and to the right because that's what you do when you're trying to retrieve information. You know, our brains are a little bit like hard drives. And they're going to like try to really think, okay, well, how do I compare Jason Pressman to any board member that I've ever worked with? And how does he stack rank? And how was he during the tough times? And you're getting now a comparative approach, which really gets to the good stuff, as Scott Cook says it. And you do the same thing with executives, with a CTO hire, with a you know, chief revenue officer hire, et cetera. Um, and it's, it, it's an incredibly powerful technique um, to really understand the strengths and weaknesses of that person compared to other candidates. Another role that you mentioned is one of the top three priorities of CEOs is be the first salesperson of the company. And you also say that sometimes CEOs underutilize their board to sell, that not only can the board help generate leads, but it can also help drive adoption at existing clients. I think you have an example with OpenTable, uh, if I'm correct. Could you elaborate a little bit on that and how a CEO can best leverage his board to sell? Well, so there are some newer age venture capital firms like Lead Edge Capital, which um, is an investor in data.world and was a large investor in Bizarre Boys, which their entire model is set up where their LPs are Fortune 500 execs that have become very wealthy, have a lot of influence, and are now looking to help startups. And so the LP base is actually someone that you can actively tap to get an introduction to the CEO of P&G, for example which is incredibly powerful. (laughs) That drove so much business for Bizarre Boys to get that high level um, and upsell and and, and et cetera. The reason I believe the CEO should leverage that megaphone to help sell is that it's a very powerful megaphone. You know, when, and I don't mean that with any level of hubris. I mean it from from a level of, we are wired in this country to look at CEOs and what they say and really analyze what they say. And so even if you're whispering, people are going to analyze that if they're thinking about doing business with you. And you should leverage that megaphone to your advantage. You know, you can, you can look them in the eyes and say things, you know, very authentically. Like if you do business with us, I'm going to personally make absolutely sure that we do the best job possible. You know, that, and, and I want you to know this is the best team I've ever been a part of. I mean, that is the truth about data.world. We have, you know, our head of customer success came from Bizarre Voice, and she was one of the best people to ever work in that role. And she is just absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, so that, that carries a tremendous amount of weight because business is based on relationships, and people don't know you all that well when they're deciding whether or not to do business with you. And if the CEO says, we're going to really service you well, then it carries some weight. It's a, it's a megaphone that nobody else in the company has. Now, there are executive megaphones, like the chief revenue officer, if they say that, that carries weight. But you know, the buck stops with the CEO. You know, we saw the CEO Boeing testify yesterday on um, the VAX. And everybody was analyzing every single word that, that, that the CEO of Boeing was saying in that testimony with the gravity of the situation. You know, we've seen Mark Zuckerberg testify to Congress 
and everybody is waiting on every word that Mark Zuckerberg is saying. So, you know, I'm under no illusion that, uh, that, you know, data.world is, is, uh, as influential as Boeing or, or Facebook. Yes. I'm not trying to compare in that way. I'm just saying that, uh, it matters a lot, no matter what the size of your company is, that CEO megaphone can be used very well. And your board, if they have the relationships or your investors have the relationships, they can open doors for you. And if you keep them informed every week, they're going to be able to open more and more doors. Last couple questions you can answer them really quickly. What's your pet peeve as a board member? What do you really cannot stand during board meetings or relationships with other board members? My biggest pet peeve in a board meeting is if someone is trying to really dictate how you should run the company. It's okay to give passion and advice. That's part of the job of a board. But sometimes I've noticed with first-time board members that are former CEOs that it's like hammer meets nail and everything they've done must have been perfect in their past and you should do things exactly like they did it. And that's just not a good coaching relationship. You know, you're not running the company. You should ultimately be as collaborative and constructive as possible. You certainly should be authentic, but you shouldn't try to be dogmatic. If there was one board in the world that you could join as a dependent board member today, which one would it be? I would join the board of Facebook today if they committed to become a B corporation. I actually had a dream that they decided to do that. And I just think it would be the most brilliant move they could possibly make right now. And they could codify in their charter what they're actually going to commit to because they've created a, an incredible utility for society to use in good and bad ways. And I think that would be a phenomenal experience for their entire company, all of their employees. You know, it would, it would really be a cultural game changer for them and would be amazing for the B Corporation movement. Unfortunately, I woke up and realized that was only a dream, but I really think that would be an amazing move for them. And, and I would be a proud board member under that construct. Brett, thank you so much for your time today. It was really an inspiring conversation. And I hope it will help other businesses and boards decide to consider the B Corp structure. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much. Brett can be followed on Twitter at DataBrett, D-A-T-A-B-R-E-T-T. He has been hard at work on refreshing the best of what he's learned in his free ebook, The Entrepreneur's Essentials. You can find the link to his Medium account in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you found some wisdom and knowledge that you can apply during your next board meeting or more broadly in your business journey. If you like this conversation, please share it with your friends and colleagues and write a review on iTunes to help others discover the show. To find more episodes of the Boards Network podcast, go to boardsnetwork.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Boards Network for the show, at Philippe Nissen and at Justine Huang 34 for our personal accounts.